We are live, gents. This is Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlisle, joined as always by my co-host, Jake Taylor, joined today by special guests, Lydia, uh, Justin Kubner, and Jack Forehand. What's happening, fellas? Good to see you. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Welcome. So just g- give everybody a little uh, a little flavor of what Validia is. Yeah, Jack. So I'll, maybe I'll start. Um, yeah, go we, we have two different businesses here. We have an investment research business where we build models off of famous investors and other strategies that have been put out there in the public domain, either books or academic papers. And then um, using that product or tool, um, individual investors and professionals sort of use it for stock screening. We have model portfolios and it basically is like a, you know, a research tool to help the everyday, I guess, active investor that's interested in these types of strategies. Um, and that business has been around since 2003. Um, and some of the models on Validia we've actually tracked since that time period. So it's a good sort of real live test of how some of these strategies actually What's work. The live winner? In sample. What's the insight? Okay, so yeah. you ready? So if yeah. I gave you if I gave you this list, uh, a model based on Buffett, a model based on Lynch, a model based on some of Jim O'Shaughnessy's work, a model based on Martin Schwag's work, a model based on um, David Dremen's work, a model based on the Motley Fool, um, and a model based on John Neff. Who would you think? I don't know John Neff well enough, but probably. Is it fool because it's a hold forever kind of more techie kind of thing? You got the answer right. You got <laughs> that was be my answer. I don't even know the answer, but that was going to be my answer too. <laughs> it's actually, you know, oh. it's not, it's not that as much as it is. It's really like a small cap growth strategy, how it really manifests. Cause we base it on the Motley Fool investment guy that they wrote way back. They don't even follow that anymore, but I mean, it's got a <laughs> lot of good components to it. Really it does. Um, so What's what are the good components? What's what's worked? I mean, it, it looks for it, you know there's a relative strength component that's very. It looks for stocks with, with relative strength of at least ninety, so it wants to see the momentum. What, what does ninety mean? It means that the if a stock has a relative strength of ninety or better, it's kind of in like in the best performing group of stocks out of one. Yeah, it's outperform outperform ninety percent of other stocks okay, effectively, okay, like trailing okay. one one year return. Got it. Is this stock Amazon? If yes, buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would have been that would have been the all-time best quantitative model if we could have come uh, up with that. Well, what is interesting is in our we base one of our models is based on Med Faber shareholder yield, and that freaking thing picked up GameStop when when it was going like crazy, Ooh. and so the model like you know it really jacked up the performance, and it's a good kind of lesson we like to talk about. Like you know you always want to look under the hood at what's driving the performance of something because that's obviously it was luck. It's not like, and that was, you know, there was really no, maybe there was value there, but not like 2,500% value like it did in the craziness. How early did it pick it up? That's the, if it's early enough, shoot, you know, it's yeah, before the huge run, definitely. Um, yeah. But you know, some of our models are all very focused. So, you know, when you run 10 and 20 stock models and you've got one stock in there that does that, it yeah. changes the entire, you know, the performance history. And so you have to be careful when you're judging it going back, it's saying like, all right, that, that's a huge part of the performance. I need to kind of carve that out and look at the rest of the model on its own. You know, it can be a challenge with these really focused models. Now, one of the things we do do on the site that I think is pretty cool is that f- for all of the portfolios, you can go back to any rebalancing date 
and see what the portfolio is holding at the time. So it's a good, I like to use it like if I'm like looking backwards, like thinking about 08 or thinking about COVID and, and how these strategies perform in downturns and then looking at the actual holdings and saying like, okay, like what was this thing picking up at the time? And then you can kind of get a sense of, you know, maybe the positives or negatives with an investment strategy. Do you think it can help you identify the cycle of the strategy itself? You know how like value sucked for so long, but value used to do okay. But if you looked at value, probably when Jake wrote, wrote his 2015 article about this value spread being very tight, you would have picked up that they were pretty junky compared to what you could, you know, you weren't paying much of a premium for the, uh, for the higher quality stuff at that time in about 2015, which I think sort of preceded the whole run that we've had. Yeah, no, I remember you talked about that when you came on our podcast, like this idea that, you know, we've never really looked at like saying like, what is the spread? And then kind of what does that tell us about which which models we should be in? You know, we, we sort of just run them, we run them as long-term models and we, we've never looked at that, but you know, that, that's an interesting idea. We should look at that, like sort of a what? regime type thing or, or what's going on with spreads. I don't, yeah, know if you of, can, I don't know if you can like factor time. I don't think it, it's almost like factor time. I don't think it works, but hit us. Yeah, we, we've tried a little bit of factor timing. It's really, really, really hard. And you know, and the, the other problem with it is it requires you to have a really strong stomach because you're going to always be early. And so you're going to be sitting there and, and underperforming for a while. So to me, of all the stuff we've looked at in factor timing, I think momentum is the best way to do it. Because momentum at least is like price is truth. So you're actually seeing what's happening and you're not, you're not going to get into value because spreads are really wide and sit there for five years. You know, you're at least going to wait till things turn a little bit. So, but it's all really challenging. Like all the factor timing stuff we've done is, is very, very difficult. Speaking of which, the Alpha Architect guys brought out their new, uh, their spread for EBIT EV today. Where are we and, at? Uh, What's it look like, Toby? It's widened again, <laughs> as of, but it's still like, it's the third widest. So when it gets wider, oh, okay. value underperforms. When it gets narrower, value. But it's like much, much wider than 2000, 2009. So. Outperforms when it gets yeah. wide, right? Uh, underperforms when it gets wide. Underperf- underperforms to get Sorry, sorry, there, sorry. You're right. Underperforms yeah. getting wide, outperforms getting narrow. When was the widest? Was it also this year? Yeah, it was like... Uh, Last year, yeah. it was That's two true. months ago. So last <laughs> month was last wider than last month, but not as wide as the preceding month, which was, I guess they've just given us the- Now, do they show like the corresponding like rolling five-year, 10-year returns of value coming off of those periods in the paper? You know? No. No. I, I haven't seen that. No. This is more oh, like a oh. dashboard that just keeps the- Oh, I see. Keeps right. it updated. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm just going to look now, just see. Yes. I, I love I love that chart that kind of it shows like value versus growth and and then you can kind of hopefully like when it gets really bad like value does start, sort of start to turn but we've kind of been been here for a while now it's getting ridiculous it's amazing really <laughs> it seems like we got our turn coming out of 2020 and then you know we then we didn't get our turn again so yeah, it was well, quick that's one of the things though. I think doesn't value, aren't the returns pretty, I mean, they're, they're very concentrated. Like when you look at the value premium, it's pretty, you know, you get like, I think 2000 to 07 probably is the exception. I think, you know, most of the value premium is sort of coming out of the sort of the, re- the recessions and the troughs of, of bear markets. It's not like this consistent, and I'm saying cons- this, this degree of underperformance is very wide, but I'm kind of wondering like, if all the a lot of the concentration value you know comes in a very short period of time, yeah. If you yeah, try to time it, the the chances of catching only when it's you know fully working probably impossible, right? You end mm-hmm. up with a call it a one percent delta, but that one percent came in a very tiny sliver of time where you were totally trouncing, right? 
Yeah, like 2000, 2003 is a great example of that. You know, you underperform forever and then you just got massive, massive returns in a really short period. But it's what makes value so hard to stick with for people because you have to sit through this torture for such a long time to get these this huge burst of returns. It, it can be especially concentrated value. You can make it really hard to stick with. Yep. Over the last 30 years. <laughs> I guess we all know that all too well. Yeah, we're... It's give, also give over the last hug. 30 years, which gets you back to 1993, which is a terrible thought, but... Since 1993, like there's been about five years of outperformance and it was 2002 to 2007, something like that. There's not been a lot of uh, joy for value in that period. Hopefully it's coming back here soon. I don't know. I thought before this year, I thought we were like, you know, we were in good shape and now we're kind of reversing back the other way. Uh, It was like September 2020 to about May 2021. Had Mm -hmm. this great run and it's just given back ground since then. Yeah, we were talking before we came on about like you were asking like what our best performing strategies are this year and i was thinking like you know in the first couple months of this year it would have been all of our value strategies and now it's completely reversed you know i was just looking yeah. at it before we came on and now it's all the growth strategies like it's completely it's done a 180 um you know in the past few months and gone the completely the other direction but it That's- is amazing how how much the overall market the average stock was doing so well through the end of february the svv thing happened and then it basically you know we all know it's like a handful of names now leading the market higher the s&p's up nine percent for the year whatever it is and you know your average stock is far far less than that. I looked at the equal weight S and P five hundred. I think the equal oh. weight is either flat or down over the last twelve months, and it's probably wow. down for the year, which is kind of amazing. So, you uh, tweeted somebody tweeted the spread between like market cap weight and equal weight is is like at historic levels right now, like in terms of performance. Like how much market cap weight is, is, I don't know if it was trailing year or what it was, like how much market cap weight is per outperforming equal weight. It's like really, really wide right now. It wasn't me, but it, okay. I, I, I've seen that chart. But let me give a few shout outs. Uh, Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic, Bendigo, ah. that's a good one. Victoria, Riyadh, Dubai, Cardiff, Wales, London, Bretton Woods, uh, Bangalore Airport, Camus, Washington, <laughs> Nashville. Uh, Paris in Canada, <laughs> Tallahassee, <laughs> North Miami, Florida, Kennesaw, Georgia. What's up? Kingston, Toronto, Townsend. Wow. Cool. Worldwide. Love it. Do you guys, uh, have you guys, do you know anything about these zero day to expiry options? Have you kind of followed this at all? Not a lot. Um, you know, we've, we've had some option guys on the podcast and we've learned a little bit about it, but I'm definitely not the guy to to ask in general. What do you know? Because I know nothing. So I'm just, it seems like in general, like it's a volatility dampening thing, but if we were to get a significant decline, it could make that decline a lot more. The other way. Like when we talked to Jem Kersan, we had in the podcast, like when we talked to people like that, that's kind of what they say is like, it it tends to be volatility dampening, but then, you know, it could could turn a 4% decline into an 8% decline really quickly if things go the wrong way. So how does does it dampen about something I don't know a lot about, but. Yeah. How does it dampen vol? Do you know? I don't know. No. Um, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, that's, that's one of the things we've been trying to do with the podcast is have guys like that on who, you know, know about areas that we don't know a lot about. Like I know very little about options and their impact on the market, but uh, that, that was the general take, but I know yeah, I can't explain it in detail. Any of the model portfolios holding Nvidia? I don't believe so. I don't think so. It has a price to sales of 50 or something like that. So that wouldn't really meet. Um, <laughs> what about just some momentum? Uh, yeah, you know what? That that would be. We do run a pure momentum based on West Gray's um, quantitative momentum model that he outlined in that book. 
Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that came in um, just given the momentum. Because it yeah, wouldn't have think. had a lot of moment. It's It was down over the last year until it kind of took off again okay. recently, yeah. I think. So maybe it wasn't. So, that would be my I, question, you because that's that model has that momentum consistency component. Right. Whereas like it favors stocks that have consistent momentum versus the ones that are all over the place. So that could knock that out. I'm not sure how consistent the momentum has been, but that, that could knock it out. Um, but one, yeah, of, one, sure. of the, one of the things that you asked before, Toby, about you like trying to time the models and is there anything that, that you can see? Like one of the things that I have found interesting is like thinking back to late 2021, a lot of the value strategies like loaded up on energy. So I remember seeing mm. this like over exposure to energy and that actually ended up kind of being a good thing for some of our strategies. The other sort of area um, that's perking up and that's been in the portfolios is these home builders which I'm a little bit surprised just because of where rates are. But for some reason, a lot of these momentum models and also so kind of from a fundamental standpoint, the home builders look pretty, pretty healthy. So I think um, it was the lumber. Lumber went up so much and then down. So lumber went up mm. so much that it kind of crushed them. And then when it fell, they had really great margins while they were selling all of these houses with uh for whatever reason, house prices remain pretty elevated. Mm -hmm. So they, they they creamed it for a while through there. I, I was the same. I, I, I held energy, well, still hold energy in some of the home. I held a lot of the home builders, but I've sold them off as we've gone along, but still got a few in there. They're still like the best performing things in there. I think they're, uh, I think they're benefiting a lot from supply issues. You know, there's no supply of existing homes. So I think despite the high rates, like home builders are actually doing okay just because there aren't a lot of existing homes to buy so that they can actually, they can, you know, sell what they're making. Well, there was a foreclosure moratorium through COVID. So there was like two years of no, um, none of that supply, none of the foreclosure supply. So that pushed it all into the new homes, I think. It's, it's, it's a little bit hard to get a read on what is happening on a fundamental basis because there's so many of these, you know, every single chart has that big like lump, whatever it is going through the Python. Hey. The pig going through the python, thank you. And it just, it makes it, you know, everything looks like it's either, it's massively over earning or, you know, relative, and the multiples, the multiple looks cheap, but it's just because it's had, it had spectacular, you know, it's either had a really, really good last few years or a really bad last few years. And it's hard to normalize through it. Yeah. That's, that's why we're trading at such a high level <laughs> in the market. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's just going to work out. Yeah, no. This is this is part of why I became a quant investor because I'm so bad at like trying to analyze this stuff. And I'm Terrible. like, you know, I, I might I might as well try to find some models that work over time and, and just try to follow them. Although they can still be hard to stick with. But uh, yeah, part part of it is like my recognition that I'm not very good at analyzing these kind of things. Don't worry, we can just throw it into Chat GPT and it'll give us all of our answers and we'll be all set. <laughs> so I was, I was going to say we are changing the name of this podcast to AI after there hours. You go. So, all right, oh, you guys are going to blow up a hockey stick <laughs> value after AI. Maybe that's what we'll call it. Ooh, that's Spicy. actually an important thing to think about. though, what value is going to look like after AI? So, yeah, what do you need for? So the thing I like about value is that it picks up a whole lot of stuff like. It gets energy when energy's cheap. It gets the home builders when they're relatively cheap, and then it sort of seems to work out. I, I like that's. I think that continues to happen, doesn't it? Value just it only likes it if it, if nobody else likes it, and that's kind of that's what everybody's worried about. AI is going to get smart and pick this stuff up, but doesn't it then definitionally like not fall into value? Yeah, I would say yeah, and and also like on the, on the side of like actually picking stocks, I'm, I'm not sure AI changes things all that much. I mean, there's not, I don't think there's gonna be like more alpha available in the market because AI is present. So 
you know, it maybe it becomes like AIs competing against other AIs to pick stocks or something like that. But I, I don't know if it fundamentally changes like the way investing works. I mean, you're still going to have periods where you struggle. You're still going to have periods where your strategy doesn't work. Like, I, I think it's, you know, in terms of like picking stocks, I mean, I, I'm sure on the high frequency side, it makes a big difference, but I, I'm not sure in the type of stuff we're doing that really makes that much of a difference. I don't know what you guys think. Well, I think about where do the three advantages come from? You have a data advantage, you have an analytical advantage, and or you have a behavioral advantage. Which which of those three vectors is AI going to radically change compared to what's happening today? And that's it's not clear to me that mm-hmm. any of those are really uh, that have a lot of juice in them. I mean, the data sets are pretty well. <laughs> everyone's kind of ha- yeah. Everyone's pretty well mined the sh- shit out of them. Um, <laughs> present company included uh yeah. for certainly um, and then analytically speaking um i i'm not sure like what's ai going to suss out about i, I perhaps there's some correlations there that still haven't been found between you know economics and and business results it's possible but I, i'm a little skeptical about that and then behaviorally i i don't you know, where does unless AI, I guess, is making less mistakes than the humans, uh, but to me, it seems like AI would make uh, different mistakes, mm-hmm. but re- repeatable mistakes. So I don't know. It'd be interesting. I yeah, do I think, think that it, humans will have a much humans can harness it to do a lot more, which will be, I think, amazing. But I don't know if it's like, I think it's a an and with the human. I think augmented intelligence is probably more the apt. AI so than than artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, a lot of ways things stay the same. I mean, people are analyzing the crap out of the data, like you said, right now. If you have information that other people don't have right now, you have an advantage. If an AI has information other people doesn't have, it has an advantage. So in a lot of ways, it's a lot of the same type stuff. You know, maybe the changes are going to be more on the actual job side of Wall Street. You know, the you need less analysts, you know, that kind of stuff. We just did a podcast about this. So we've been we've been like thinking about this a lot. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I would say that's what it is. You know, the good analysts become a lot better and you need less analysts. I mean, maybe, maybe stuff like that versus on the actual stock picking side. I mean, the one thing with us though is we do we like we've been talking about, we have proprietary data. We have, you know, almost 20 years of rating individual equities through anywhere from 12 strategies when we started to 20. Uh, well, actually, there's in total, there's 45 different models that we run, but not all of them are on the Valeria site. But you know, could we u- utilize AI to improve our investment process? Um, I'm sure there's something we could do there, but then it becomes kind of a big backtesting exercise. And you kind of got to be careful with that too, because you're just looking at the past historical data and saying, okay, what has worked the best? Um, but in terms Over of like having a variety of data. <clears throat> yeah, let's... Hoping that that 20 years is representative of what comes before <laughs> right. and after. And you're not overfitting the model like a in a big way. Yeah, exactly. You have data mining issues. And also like we, we just did a, a, an episode of our podcast. We were talking about like Toby knows because he was on like we have that standard closing question. What's the one lesson you teach the average investor? And we put them all together into like 70 people. And the one Adam Butler said keeps like it keeps haunting me when you talk about what you're just talking about, which is this idea. He said the past is just one sample draw in an infinite series of sample draws. And so the idea is even if I have massive amounts of data, like the past could have been completely different. So when I'm, when I'm running these tests, I have to be really careful about, you know, the last 40 years, interest rates were falling the whole time. Like I, I can test yeah. all kinds of stuff that works great in the last 40 years, but what does it tell me about what's gonna happen in the next 40 years? 
And it's just, it's really, it's important to keep in mind, like the amount of randomness, even in really long data series, yeah. um, you know, and that, that's tough for quants because you obviously want to use data, but you also have to think about like, what does it actually mean? Toby, what was your answer to that question? Oh, I can't remember patience. Write it, write it down. Was that what write I said? Everything that's down. a good answer. <laughs> uh, yeah. I remember these because I put aside <laughs> to compile point, this whole thing together. Point. So I remember yeah. all, and he's just ripping Jake off. He had nothing else on his mind, but we know Jake like does his he's notes and stuff. <laughs> Let's basically write it down in a fancy version. Last time, when, when I chatted to you guys uh, on the on the pre-recorded podcast, I think I asked you at that time, like, what was the best strategy that it worked through that period? And I think it was Partha Mahanran had that yeah. G-score. Yep. Yes. Uh, yeah. How's the G-score done since? Is that Did that pick up any of the ARC type things? Like, did it participate in that big run-up? So, it definitely... Go ahead, Justin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the last three years if that's what we're looking at, um, that strategy is, it's in, let's say it's in the bottom, it's in, out of the 22, it's, it's in the bot, it's number, whatever, it's in eighth, eighth from last. So there's a lot of strategies that are better than that in the last three years, over the last five years, if you roll it back to that period when growth is doing better, it's in the number two position. Um, so there was that kind of, it really was through, you know, through 20 March or April of 2020, that, that strategy was ripping. And then when value kind of turned, you know, that sort of dropped off, I guess. And just My recollection, some... sorry. Go yeah. Well, I was just going to describe for everybody what it was just, it was basically, it was like a Piotrowski F score, like a fundamental score to look for balance sheet and business health, but it was only applied in the most expensive quintile or decile or third of stock. So he was he was um, intentionally screening for the most overvalued stuff. And then it Correct. was long short out of that group. And it was long the healthy stuff and short the ugly stuff. And my recollection, because I talked to him subsequent to you guys, he said that a lot of the returns were generated on the short side, mm-hmm. except for that period of time where unusually in whatever it was, 19 and 20, the returns were generated on the long side. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, that's is, it long, right. is yours long short or is it long? No, long? it's long only. Long, long only. only. Yeah. Long okay. only. yeah. So one of the things I've always thought would be interesting with that is, you know, it, the idea of starting with expensive stocks, I don't necessarily love that idea, obviously, because expensive stocks are not the greatest yeah. thing to invest in. I thought about what if you come up with some sort of earnings growth or some sort of growth criteria instead of just the fact that they're expensive and then apply the, you know, the criteria yeah. after that, would it do better? We've, we haven't been, we've never run it, but I, I think that's an interesting thing. Like to try to, I just hate the idea of like having a strategy where the starting point is like, give me the most expensive stocks. Yeah, like it's, it's like against everything I believe as a value investor. So like I thought about, is there some other way we could define growth and, and then kind of apply the criteria? After well, that? We, we, we do have that twin momentum model that looks at, it looks at price momentum and fundamental momentum. And then it looks at, I don't know, there's five or six different fundamental criteria. And then it looks at the kind of improve, improvement in the growth rate of those things. Return on assets might be one of them. Um, earning, I don't know, Jack, what are the, what are the variables in that twin momentum? I don't even know them off the top of my head. Oh, okay. I could, I could look at it, but, um, but that's another interesting one that does look at sort of the fundamental momentum. Is that based on, is that dual momentum or twin, twin momentum? That's momentum that yes. It's yeah. Twin momentum. That's not the dual. This is based okay. on a research paper. The guy's name is Deshaun Huang. I think he's like out of Singapore or something like that. Um, that's what he wrote, but the, the fundamental momentum is 
So it's using a combination of earnings, return on equity, return on assets, accrual operating profitability to equity, cash operating profitability to assets, gross profit to assets, and the net payout ratio. And then so it's looking do- at good and, and good momentum, but there's no value right. to that at all. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. How's it That's doing? one you'll see. Yeah, you'll see like a lot of debate with momentum investors on that one because a lot of momentum investors believe sort of the fundamentals is encapsulated in the price momentum. So you don't really need the fundamental momentum. And then other people will say the fundamental momentum actually adds value. You know, I, I think there's two reasons it's good. One is I think it's a little less volatile. Um, if, the fun, if the fundamentals are improving along with the momentum, the strategy is a little less volatile. Um, so, so I think that's a positive, you know, relative to like standard momentum. And the other thing is people, I think it's easier for investors to stick with a little bit because investors sometimes, you know, when you try to explain momentum to them, they're like, all right, I'm just buying the stock because it's going up and there's really no other reason I'm buying it. <laughs> it's gone like, up why, would I, why would I want to do that? And so I think with fundamental momentum, you can at least say, all right, the fundamentals are going up along with the stock price. Even though you don't have valuation, at least you have some sort of fundamental underpinning. So I think people like that a little bit more. But I think it's mixed in terms of whether fundamental momentum actually adds like return to like a pure momentum strategy. Um, Jacket Alpha, Alpha Architect um, once told me that the best the best growth strategy was was price momentum because he said yeah, that that's right. it, it tends to he said the price momentum tends to lead the fundamental improvement a little bit like the market does seem to have pretty good information there. Yes, there's the a one weird thing. Go now go ahead, Jack. No, I was saying the one challenge is sometimes you're you know as as a as a price momentum investor sometimes you're owning the things like you don't want to own as a growth investor. You know, you're owning the value stuff. And so like for people who want to be growth investors, they end up with like these steel companies or whatever. Yeah. And they're like, well, what is, what's going on here? But as long as you understand that, I think he's totally right about that. I mean, that's ideal, really. If, you, if, it, if it's putting, that's one of the nice things. I think Corey Hofstein pointed, out, pointed that out to me that momentum is a little bit of a movable feast. Like sometimes it's value and sometimes it's growth and sometimes like whatever's, whatever's going well, which is a good thing, I guess. It just got it got smoked in 2007, 2009. It was down like 90% or something like that. Mm-hmm. That was the big momentum, like the right. 200 years of momentum crash there. And then values had its subsequent to that, values had its really bad crash too. But that sort of seemed to be disqualifying for momentum for me for a little bit there. The crash was so big. Yeah. There's this uh, concept in medicine that's like called efficacy versus... Uh, effectiveness. And they kind of, when you hear those two words, they like sound like that's the same thing. Right. But, um, but in a medical context, uh, efficacy is what it would look like if you were able to run it under ideal conditions, a hundred percent compliance. And, you know, this is like the best it could be ideal scenario. Effectiveness is like, what do people actually do and follow? And what, what could you actually expect to happen in the real world? And I think that the disconnect between those two is often uh, very interesting to examine and think about. And a lot of times, maybe being suboptimal, like you said, like people following, uh, they need like a fundamental reason to do, to add in there just to keep their the effectiveness up, even if maybe you're giving up some from some of the uh, the efficacy. I think that's one of the arguments for using like the the magic formula over my acquirers multiple that. It, the magic formula is the much ROIC more. The ROIC part adds mm-hmm. the yeah. good business that makes but you stick it, stick with it. But also, it's it, like you, it does not perform as much through like the big bubbles. Uh, you get you right. survive two thousand, you survive. You survive ninety nine two thousand, you survive two thousand nineteen twenty twenty. Do you do you have do you have veggies today? Are, they, are those your veggies? 
No, no, that was just a free bonus. Uh, that was just a appetizer. A moose bush. Ooh. Do you want to do? Do you want to do veggies? Yeah. You guys know veggies. J- Jake has some some learnings. Make benefit glorious nation of value after us. <laughs> yeah, love that. Uh, I want that to be the intro every time. Do say that? Uh, so, like the it seems like the animal ones are always some of the most popular ones. So I have an animal one for us today. And um, this is the humble tuna kit, which I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. I had not uh, spelled T-U-N-I-C-A-T-E. And this is a, a sea squirt that is, looks a little bit like a clear tube in the ocean. And it's born with this tiny brain that's called a cerebral ganglion. And it has a little tiny eye that can, it can sense light. And it's got this primitive organ called an otolith, which allows it to sense gravity, like to orient itself horizontally or vertically. Okay. And it spends its larval stage with this little brain swimming around and it's looking for a rich feeding ground. And eventually when it finds that a promising area, it then cements itself headfirst to the seafloor and then it dissolves its own brain and it spends the rest of its days filtering nutrients from the passing water with no burden of, of having to worry about having a brain. And uh, so the first observation of this, this life uh, of the tunicate is that scientists have hypothesized that mother nature evolved our brains, these chunk clumps of cells in our heads, basically to primarily plan and execute movement. So moving our bodies is central to getting the most out of our brains. And there, there are important connections between moving and thinking and, Henry David Thoreau had this once wrote, um, methinks that the moment uh, my legs begin to move, my thoughts begin to flow. And there've been countless famous walkers throughout history, Virginia Woolf, Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin, um, Beethoven, Nietzsche, Steve Jobs. Uh, and of course, you know, Socrates and, and Aristotle use walking as part of their pedagogic pedagogical, uh, processes. Uh, so, uh, Go for walks, you know, plan in-person walking meetings, which are some of my favorites. Uh, I've been trying to increasingly ditch Zoom and instead have like a walking phone call with somebody, uh, which I find to be much better. Uh, and then Toby, like speak to your your treadmill desk situation. Yeah, I got a, I got a walking desk. I've had a walking desk since like 2010, something like hmm. that. I'm on my second one, which is actually just broken down. I'm going to be at my, I'll be at my third one, but yeah, wow. I, I swear by them just by, I just set it at like, I used to set it at a mile an hour, not to set it at 0.8 miles an hour. I read this. There's a New York Times 2006 article about uh, people who people who have like restless leg syndrome, people who jitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do they call that? Neat, non-exercise, something activity, whatever it is. But it's basically people who people who like bounce their legs and can't sit still, like lose some some amount of weight every year. And so the the researchers who are studying this installed walking desks in there. Um, in their offices to sort of take advantage of this, so I try uh, to do the same thing. But it, I, I, I do. I, I, f- I feel euphoric on a weekend after a weekend when I start working on it, walking on it on a Monday. It makes me feel much better. I'm a big advocate. Everybody should get one. It's nice. easier oh. to walk than it is to stand. You, you guys, you guys yeah. stand. Or you, I'm, I'm you standing stand now. This? I'm standing. I'm Usually on my podcast, I stand. Yeah, Jack's sitting. Yeah, I should. I should start standing. But I could see how you could, I mean, if you had it like on like whatever, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.8, you could kind of manage that, like, and just still do work and be able to type. And especially once you get used to it, you know, it's easier than standing. Cause I find mm-hmm. my knees get sore if I stand, but if I walk, then it, 
the, the, there's something more elastic about it. You're pumping, pumping the lymph as well, which is good. Well, Jake, I think we figure back. out how to do value after hours with everybody walking outside. <laughs> well, no, that's <laughs> see, see if you can live stream. Jake, go back to your, uh, what were you doing? The hike? Um, hike cast, yeah. Hike cast. I was like, this guy's like brilliant. It was so like original. And I remember I used to hear the birds in the background. And sometimes you guys would be going up hills and you'd be a little bit out of breath. Like, yeah. okay, so I'm going to ask you. And, <laughs> you know, and Toby, you did it with him a couple of times, I think, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. That was all that was all that noise was added in post. You know, that's real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys really weren't hiking. You were just fooling everyone. Yeah. Just um, for the background. We should do it again, JT. You put that background on. I'll borrow that background. We'll do it with the. Uh, do it, Leia, while we're. I'll do it actually walking, walking on the machine. <clears throat> Those were great. That's terrible. So, second observation from this uh, this humble little sea squirt is I, I think that you have to keep seeking, learning, growing, exploring if you want to have use for your brain. Uh, and, you know, how many people do you know who might have maybe figured out a little bit of some stuff early on, but they get kind of stagnant and their brains just sort of turned to mush and, you know, they've, been, they've kind of lived the life of the tuna kit. How uh, dare you? <laughs> once they think they have everything figured out, you know, you metaphorically, you submit your head to the ocean floor and then become kind of a passive tube, usually just filtering confirm the confirmation bias out of the ocean of information. And well, uh, <laughs> th that's like, that's literally the quant strategy. You do all of the work and then you're not allowed to change the strategy. So you've got to dissolve your brain and cement your head to the floor of the ocean. Fair enough. Turn into a feeding tube. <laughs> it's, I didn't want to have to uh, make that analogy, but I'm, I'm going to let you make that one. It's just there. It's, we're, all, we're all quants here, so. That's where that's what we got to acknowledge. That's the case. Well, if you know, if, I think Munger, Munger continually highlights how important it is that Buffett's like one of his greatest powers is that he's a learning machine, right? And they've they both of them have kept getting better uh, for decades. And I, I think in my my takeaway is that like I think it's important to kind of still protect your curiosity and keep swimming and not not cement your head to the floor. Yeah, good I, advice. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but like the the smartest people we've talked to, like the more they admit, the smarter people are we've talked to on the podcast, the more they admit what they don't know. Like Jim O'Shaughnessy talks about that all the time. Like he, he's always saying, I don't know. And, you know, in our space, he's one of the smartest guys there is. So like if those guys that can say, I don't know all the time and they can admit what they don't know, I mean, I've got to be able to do it. So it's hard, it's hard to do. Uh, and then like Toby said, it's hard with quant strategies when you kind of cement the thing in to say, all right, maybe the world's changed. Maybe we got to look at this because there's also the tendency to rely on short-term things to make changes, which you can't do. It's like this balance between the long and the short term, but, but still like, yeah, I mean, if those guys can say, I don't know, you know, all of us have to be able to say that. Jack, do you remember what uh, Lawrence Cunningham said about Buffett was his like key attribute to, wasn't it disciplined it rationality? Disciplined rationality. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it, it kind of, he, he talked about the learning a lot too, but we had uh, Larry Cunningham on who's awesome. And he's kind of like a scholar on Buffett and it was like Buffett's, you know, ability to stay disciplined and rational. Um, but also his willingness to, you know, I guess, adjust and pivot and change and learn, um, which is what he's, you know, which is what those guys do, which is why, you know, they've had the success they've had. Yeah. It's amazing to see the tension between like, I don't feel like the principles haven't changed, mm -hmm. but, but the, the tactics, the, the execution has been more malleable to, to the environment. Did you guys go to the Berkshire meeting? Yes. We nice. Did. Sweet. Jack and I were just saying we got to get out there at some point, but 
Yeah, I've never gone. Like, go like, sooner rather than later. I gotta go. Go to the next one. Yeah, what's the rush? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Actually, wow, that's true. <laughs> probably, have... probably do need to do that pretty soon. <laughs> JT's got his camouflage on. Oh, uh, my shirt's yeah, it's too close to my green screen. Justin, you could go win the uh, the five k race. Oh yeah, what uh, did you run it? I did not. But what was uh, what was the winning time? Do you know? I don't know. I'll have sure, to look it up. I'm sure, you could beat it. I don't know. I bet there's some really good. I mean, there's so many people. I bet there's a lot of good good runners that go. I mean, you, you win the race at pretty much any conference event that exists. So I'm sure you'd win this one too. I don't know. Yeah. That was back in my day, but I did. I did actually yesterday I did Murph. Do you guys know what Murph is? Oh yeah. So I, I didn't do it weighted. I do it unweighted, but it's still a brutal. I'm freaking so sore today. <laughs> what is it? 100 pushups, 200 or 100 chins, 200 yeah, pushups, yeah. 300 so squats. It, so it's run a mile, hundred pull-ups, 200 pushups, 300 air squats, run a mile. And my miles were like 630-ish, which was pretty decent. I can make up a lot on the running. So, you know, and then surprisingly, the air squats are what kind of slows me down. It's a weird thing. I've got like runner's How many days do you have to do all these? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) What's the time? (laughs) Over a week, right? Okay. Yeah. What do you make of... uh, I've said this a few times, but there's been this like... um, there's 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 like an emblematic... Uh, mutual fund often that is the is the one that people remember from the booms and i think you know in in 2000 it was the it was the janus funds which got very big and when they were because of their performance they raised more money and they put it into the the money losing tech stocks and had a brief period of like working really well and then this time around of course it's been arc do you think that the fact that kathy missed nvidia is that the death knell for, for arc didn't she she sold it in the fall is that right at the at the low yeah on valuation really hmm. what was funny is she was actually on twitter talking about it like i think today and she was kind of highlighting like or i guess they have some other you know chip maker that they own that's it might be prime i don't know what it is but uh that they were saying is great but i was surprised she was even bringing attention to the nvidia thing right now well, you she know, was given that that- on friday night i think they're talking about yeah no it's definitely a big miss you know one of the things i've learned with those types of funds though is you know eric balchunas talks about this like people tend to use that for like a really small portion of their portfolio and i think that's part of why you know they they can continue to do well and you know people don't you know because one of the things with that fund is it's continued to have inflows despite you know really bad performance and you know that could be part of why is you know it's such a small portion of people's portfolios they're they're adding to it you know when it goes down versus doing something else whereas if they had a huge position in it you know, they'd probably be like liquidating. Uh, I've never been able to explain that, but the, that's the, the best one, I can come up with. The, the one thing I would be, I'm, I'm interested in like the business side of it. I mean, no, we're getting off investing a little bit, but I think she bought back like ARC at like the peak. And so that's clearly right. she, she, you know, either financed it or had outside investors or, or however that worked. Now, I don't know where her assets are at relative to where they are today, but I would imagine they're down significantly. So, you know, she bought, unless, unless they structured the deal in such a way where, you know, if assets went down 50% or something like that, like she could adjust the sale. I, I don't know. I'm just interested in like the viability of, of the business a little bit, but I, I don't have any data to question it. It's just, I'm more curious as being in the investment management business and thinking about those things, like, you know, what's going on there. I think it's interesting. Well, she had the option in it that an outside right. firm had that she bought back at the peak 
and like just the performance they're off 80%. I don't know what the assets are off, but 80% probably, 80% plus a little bit of inflows. That's a big yeah. differential in terms of valuation. Mm-hmm. That's a tough, you know, just in general, running anything focused in the investment management business is very, very tough because you're going to have your periods where you just look awful and, you know, not, not to compare her to deep value or what we do or anything like that, but it's, it's true of all focused things. She kind of puts it on steroids, but you know, all these strategies are, are very different on the business side of things are very, very hard because it's hard to get people to stick with them when they're struggling. I just she's done she a pretty job of that actually. Of good, good, she had the period of good performance. Unlike Deep Valley. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. When, when We're still waiting peak, for ours, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think at the peak, her five-year numbers when she was, when it peaked, I mean, it may have been some of the best active manager mutual fund ETF performance ever. I mean, it might've been something like compounding at 40% over a five-year period, um, which was ridiculous. I just can't. And listen, a lot of those companies will be great companies. Um, some of them, some of them won't. I just, I feel like given the fact that we've all kind of went through the dot-com boom and bust, and I know Kathy did too. So it's, it's weird that like she, you, you can never see it coming, but it just is like, I, I was like, was like, eventually this has to end. Eventually these things that are trading at 20, 30, 40 times sales, not earnings sales, you know, they're going to go down and they're going to get hit hard. And that's exactly what happened. And, and, uh, you know, if you're if you're like a young investor in your 20s that you're investing for the first time and you're taking flyers like that, you haven't seen that type of market environment before. That's one thing. But I mean, we all, we've all been through it. So, you know, she kind of was obviously not um, sort of respecting history, I guess. On that but then, you know, 20, 2015, I don't know when she launched, but it was around that sort of 20, 2015 kind of period of time. Like at that time, we you weren't no. you weren't paying much for the you weren't paying much for those little tech options like everything was between 2010 and 2015 all the big tech got cheap and all of all the tech was just super cringy through there and it was probably the right time to be launching something like that didn't we we launched almost to the day with yeah. our Justin right we had our yes. value ETF we launched, really? um, we yeah, launched yeah. so we basically picked the exact ETF. wrong strategy to launch at the exact wrong time and she picked the exact right strategy oh. to launch at the exact right time. <laughs> It's literally rough. the same week. And we we're like, oh, this this disruptive fund, it's not gonna do it. You know, it was a great period to be just in that type of stuff. Innovation. And also, we in were the like field of innovation. Yeah, and we were like, value is really cheap, you know, back then. Like we we're like, value is a great opportunity right now. And obviously it didn't play out that way. Yeah. Value still looks like a great opportunity. It does, that's right. <laughs> Eventually it'll be realized. But like we've talked about, I mean, the ETF business is, I mean, you've done, you've done great, Toby. I mean, you're, you know, you're the I'm not allowed to talk there. about it. I'm not allowed to talk oh, yeah. about it. On, okay. On gotcha. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically, um, you've done okay. Yeah. Yeah. It survived at least. We're surviving. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I got a question about the book. I'm still working on the book. It's getting close to being finished. It's just, I got to get past the, uh, it just needs to be polished up. It's almost, it's almost done. I'm trying to get it out any, any like inside any the month, now. I think. Yeah. Really? That's what I'm that... trying to. We're trying to get the rough draft finished, and then I'm going to force it on a few people and force them to read it. Oh boy! Are you self-publishing or? Uh, I don't know. I okay. Don't know. Yeah, it's my preference because it's just it's easier to do. But uh, I'm going to talk to a few publishers first. If I self-publish, it'll come out faster. I have my copy of the Rebel Allocator right down there. Got I heard you. Of that. Yeah. <clears throat> Love that. 
on the self-publishing topic, there's a really good episode recently you should listen to of Infinite Loops, Jim O'Shaughnessy's podcast, where they went through that entire thing. They like brought people on a redact. I don't know, you may have already listened to it, but like the idea of self-publishing a book, like they went through the entire thing and like why you should do it these days. And it, it was really, really good. I self-published the last one and it's by far and away the most successful one I've had. I'm a, yeah, because I mean, you can charge, charge less. And it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, it seems like the big publishers rely on you for distribution anyway. Right. Like yeah. they're not adding it's that like much. It's 95% Amazon. And then okay. Amazon will Amazon will take the more successful books and put them in airport bookshops. They they have their own little bookshops around anyway, or they put them in bookshops anyway. So you're not missing out on anything self-publishing. The only thing is that the publishing house sometimes has a marketing arm that can help you sell the book. But if you look at the, the, the cut that the publisher takes under the most favorable circumstances is like 40% of what you would of what you get, which is like a small portion of what they charge on the cover of the book. So they have to sell, you know, if you think about them taking 40% of the 100%, you have to sell 66% more books just to break even. So for them to justify their position, they've got to be able to sell two thirds more books than you would otherwise sell. And they're coming to me for the distribution of the marketing. Right, and the marketing plan. It it just doesn't make any sense. It seemed like the only thing they had that could be an advantage is if you get like a really good editor at, at a publishing house, that could help. Like they can make that can make the book a lot better. But it seemed like other than that, there weren't there weren't too many advantages to go. I've on. never I've never had an editor. Like there's there's a line in it where they go through and they make sure that you cited everything correctly and capitalized all of your sentences and stuff like that, spelled all the words correctly, you know, that that thing. And they you know they make just as many mistakes as I do. But that then then there's the I guess there's the the style editor or something who says. Yeah, you didn't. Layout. The idea isn't clear enough here. Or, yeah. Oh yeah. But you can pay for that too. I mean, you can just that, all of those things are modular. You can just go through the Amazon, um, whatever their publishing system is called, and all of that stuff is available. And then you just got to pay for it up front. That's the big difference, I guess. The publisher pays for it up front, um, whereas the author pays for it. But the payback period is so much shorter for self-publishing. I I think it would be hard to justify using a publisher unless you were somebody famous and it was like a big publishing house where they had they can get you on i don't know the daytime talk show shows or something like that i don't think they'll yeah. sell that much anyway though if based on my research like tv doesn't convert mm-hmm. people who watch tv don't buy a lot of books yeah exactly <laughs> people who watch daytime tv don't buy a lot of books yeah, yeah. you see what the authors do these days i mean they go on podcasts so it seems like that's the best way to sell books i mean they, they just do a tour of a bunch of podcasts and it seems like that works better than anything else that's been sure. my plan. I found that That'll works. be our excuse to get you back on uh, for your fourth yeah, appearance and excess returns. I'd love to. I'll come, I'll come back on. Jack Colin and I Roche has now taken the title of most uh, frequent guest. He's now four or three. So uh, <laughs> who you is got, it? You got to write who, that wrong. Who's got me? Who, who, who's, who's been on more? Colin Roche. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You guys like that macro. We, we do. We're talking about the Fed and stuff like that. Um, Jack and I have kicked around the idea of trying to take that, that standard closing question, which is we, we, we always ask, like, if you could teach one lesson to the average investor, what, what would that be? And then kind of trying to wrap like all of those responses like up in like a book. So it'd be That's like, you know, kind of like a compilation book of all like investing wisdom with some cool title. And then we, we obviously reach out to all the people to make sure that we could, you know, use their insight or whatever. But I think it would be kind of cool maybe um books are just so much work though oh know. for sure <clears throat> you, but if you if you get like if you get a few hundred of those and you can get somebody to 
put all those together. That's that's a that's enough. That's a book. Mm-hmm. Get on it, Jack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get going tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know what's the other books? My strength. What, what's the what's what's Cullen's take on on the Fed and the and the markets? We haven't had him on for a while, actually. You know, we've been doing with him. What's we your take? tend to do like we tend to do these primers. So we want to do a primer, like what people, what investors need to know about inflation or what investors need to know about fed policy. Cause he's really, really good at that stuff. Like making it understandable for people what's going on. So we ask less about predictions and we ask more about, you know, teach us what we need to know yeah. about inflation and what drives it or teach us what we need to know about what the fed's doing. Like we, we tend to do stuff like that with him. Is inflation still running hot? It's not even, it's not reported on anymore. Depends on who you ask, I guess. It depends on what number they're, you know, they're they're throwing. That True Inflation uh, website is showing it's running the threes now. Is that right? True Inflation says in the threes. Yeah. So lo- lower than you know a lot of people think, but then a lot of other people are saying it's running four or five. Um, there's yeah, just, I thought it, it sort of settled into a five percent range since like it's two years of five percent, something like that. Yeah, so it's this is something that's definitely beyond my pay grade is trying to figure out inflation and you know all the different measures of it and all the things that go in it and it's just, there's just so much going on. But I mean, it seems like it's calmed down, but it certainly hasn't calmed down near where the Fed wants it to be. A big a big run up in Nvidia and all of the tech stocks following must mean that they've got headroom to keep on raising rates. <laughs> there's still a fair bit of speculation out there, yeah. as far as I can see. I think that's the problem. I think they're going to keep going. Um, spirits. Yeah. To your question measures. about the market, uh, sorry, Tom. Yeah, no, sorry. I was, I was going to say, to your question about, about the markets, it's, you know, it's because we work with a lot of individual investors. It's like, I don't get the sense. I think people were frustrated a little bit with the losses last year, but it kind of was accepting to some extent because the market was down, whatever, 18%. If you kind of hung in there and there was no place to hide. Um, you're but probably I, still I, up over five years, right? You're well and truly up over yeah, yeah. few years, depending on and when I, you started. And but I do think that you know when people are looking at like the last two and a half years and and seeing that they're like flat, you know, I think it's I think it's somewhat frustrating. But I don't get the sense that individual investors, at least, are overly worried or scared. I mean, I had some conversations around the debt ceiling. And, you know, for some clients, we did some small adjustments just in case something went haywire. But, um, you know, but it's a weird market. I don't know if that means it's complacent. I don't know if it means that we're just in this, we got to just grind it out. It's hard for me to see why this thing like ripped higher. But then again, you know, you could maybe if the Fed sort of, if the market starts to sniff out that the Fed's going to move, I mean, you're probably going to see better performance out of many stocks probably. Um, it's just a weird sort of weird market these days. I feel like I don't know, Jack, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm just hoping it'll widen out some, <laughs> you know, for the type of thing we do, like the five stocks driving the whole market is not where you want to be. Um, <laughs> there's, there's really, there's really no factor you can use to get you at five stocks driving the market. Um, I guess market, market cap. cap. Yeah, exactly. But that's not one of the better ones over time. Nice. So, you know, we were just no. talking to a client about this the other day, like this, this idea that, you know, if you look at what works over a hundred years, and you look at what's worked over a much shorter period, they're totally opposites of each other. And yeah. so it's a tough thing for clients to sort of digest and think about, you know, we, we try to bring people back to what's worked over a hundred years. And, you know, what's worked over a hundred years is not by the biggest companies that are, you know, that are, have, have the most price appreciation, you know, that, that's not really what it's been. And so we, we try to bring people back, but it's hard when, when these big stocks are driving the market like they are. 
And one of the things we have been doing too is, um, I think I mentioned this to you, like we're sort of trying to build for clients that need it, like more robust portfolios. So for example, we run a strategy that takes like a version of the permanent portfolio, a version of the all weather portfolio, basically with trend following, and then does this other asset class rotation type thing. And so like this very robust multi-asset class portfolio that uses trend following momentum, and it can go to like crash protection mode when things get like really bad. And so, you know, that kind of man, it sort of looks like over most periods of time, maybe like, I don't know, maybe like 50% equity, 30% bonds, and then 20% alternatives, but then the cash value can flex um, depending on what the momentum is. And if, so we're sort of like using that as, you know, we don't know where the world's going. So let's use a bunch of different strategies that have these components and then, you know, and, and try to manage risk, but, you know, get some decent returns too. And that seems to be, you know, something that's resonating with people. Um, what does the return yeah, what, on something that look, look like that look like? What does it do? It's, it's similar to a 60-40 type portfolio return. Um, it's it's but, just more diverse. It's much more diversified and you'd see less drawdowns than a 60-40 because it has the ability, it's using momentum to rotate among asset classes. So it's probably a fairly comparable return. What's it you doing know, like a 2022? That's um, down, but not as much as stocks and bonds because it'll, it'll have, you know, it'll have, it'll pick up commodities when they have momentum. It'll pick I up see. gold. It'll, it'll pick up other stuff. So yeah, not as much down, but that, that's the real strength of something like that is drawdown management um, because you have, it's more, you know, you think that four quadrant people thing people always talk about with economics, like it's, it's robust to all four quadrants. So it has something for inflation. It has something for deflation. It has something for, you know, strong growth. So you're giving up a lot in the, you know, in the up markets, you're not going to keep up with the S&P. And, but in the down markets, you have, you know, usually have something that, that's working. The, the reason I ask is just because so many hedged or 60, even the 60 40 portfolio, everything had a bad year last year because bonds traded so right. badly last year and volatility was shocking last year too. So the traditional hedges were just added yeah. to your misery. <laughs> it, I, think, I, think we, I think we may have come into that year in our testing, we may have had a historical drawdown on that portfolio going back to, um, six of something like 9%. But I think last year we, we did. So we would have had the max drawdown actually was like 2022 for that strategy. Something like, I don't know if it was 12 or 13%, something like that down. It's amazing how drawn out this whole thing has been that we're 2021, February, 2021 is when ARC topped out. So we're more than two years. We're two years and four months past that now. And this market fell over at the start of last year, so or at the end of the year before. So we're now 17, 18 months into that, into this drawdown. Does it like what but, do you do? You, it doesn't feel cheap well, to me here. It doesn't feel like it's going no, to but that, that, that's that's us. the thing. It's like the losses weren't an adjust. They weren't. You weren't taking losses because of of a, of a recession or growth really slowing. You were taking losses because the market was adjusting from being overvalued. In some parts wicked overvalued, you know, to this sort of reasonable or, or valuation given the new world of interest rates and where inflation is, I think at least, you know, that's, that's the, that's the big thing, right? I mean, if we go into a recession, like, I don't think stocks are discounting. Um, you guys might disagree, you know, um, um, a middle of the road recession. I think the valuation, it's been a valuation adjustment more than a growth slowdown adjustment story. Um, so if you if we come out of this like 
okay, like, yeah, this will be the, like stocks are probably reasonably priced here in some, some places more than others. And, you know, but if we go into recession, that, that's where I'm probably just stating the obvious, but that's kind of how I think about what's, you know, transpired here in the markets. What's, what's interesting in terms of stocks being reasonably priced is that that's such a tough thing to judge right now, because, you know, when we look at like the median valuations, those are actually very, very reasonable right now. You know, your median valuations on all stocks, but then when you look at the market cap weighted valuations, they're a lot less reasonable. So like in the, in the world we live in where we're equally weighting stocks and, you know, we're using fundamentals, like valuations actually don't look too bad. But like, if you look at the overall S&P 500 valuations, they, they look a lot worse. So it's, it's an interesting thing. And I don't know if that opportunity will be realized, you know, if that will narrow, but it's just an interesting space right now because you're seeing two different valuation stories, depending on how you look at it. When you say the median valuation, so median valuation of equal weight stocks, it doesn't look too bad. How, how are you making that assessment comparing it to preceding years of median valuations of equal yeah, weight so we stocks? Have a, we, have a, we have a tool on our website that does this. So, so effectively, we just take you know, whatever valuation metric we're using, we sort the entire database by that valuation metric, we take the middle value, and then we, we take that middle value and we graph that over time. Okay. And you know, that value right now is like below average. Um, okay. So it's not like crazy cheap Going or anything, back to but 2006. It, it's- Yes, it's it's below average. Whereas, you know, if you did that in, on a market cap weighted basis, it would be very, very high. So, you know, you see these huge, this huge separation between what the valuation of sort of the average stock out there is and what the valuation of, of you know, the most expensive companies is. Um, and, and I don't know how that resolves itself, but it, it's, it's an interesting thing that we've been seeing for a while, but we're seeing it a lot more this year because the, the large companies are starting to take off again. And you run it back to... Can you run it back earlier than 2006? Do you have a- We don't have it. We, we've done it through other things. We don't have it on our website beyond, you know, we do it on a daily basis and I didn't have the daily data. So on our website, it's only back to 06. Yeah, right. Yeah, the daily data. That's interesting. But it's like, I would say even through that period of time, 2006 to, to date, mostly it's an overvalued market on a, on a Cape basis anyway. Yeah, definitely. Almost the entire period, I would think. I mean, maybe not in like beginning of 2009 or something, but for most of the period, yeah. Well, margin profiles looked quite a bit different too over that period. So mm. that'll be interesting to see what happens there with, uh, based on Monnier's work with about why that happened, mostly government deficits contributing to corporate profit margins. If that's something that keeps going, which who knows, but it's, <laughs> how do you underwrite some of these? bigger giant things like that it's it's not the easiest thing in the world the cheshire cat just disappeared into his background then <laughs> oh did i oh good just my head floating oh, there you there go. go that's cool what, what are you what are you guys uh, looking forward to over the next 12 months like what, what's going to work what's uh, going to work professionally what's going to work personally <laughs> oh, you're that's good I, I wish i knew yeah yeah i'm going to send you tob i'm going to send you a link to the uh, market valuation tool because your listeners yeah, I'll, I'll put can, that up. Can, um, they can access part of it for free. I'll so, put it up. That um, yeah, good. cool, cool. Yeah, but I mean, for for us personally, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've we've really been enjoying like doing the podcast. So, like, what I look forward the most is probably that. You know, it, it's been an opportunity for us to talk to people who would never talk to us otherwise. So, uh, you know, that's kind of cool. And we've been focusing on, you know, we've been like studying Mr. Beast and stuff and trying to figure out like how do you what does the YouTube <laughs> cover have to look like? Uh, and what does the title have to be? I hope you become so, huge. Yeah, I don't. I don't think uh, we're going to be Mr. Beast, and I don't think we're going to put out the kind of content that would, uh, you know, that would do that. We, we'd have to be a little more aggressive than uh, than we can. Giving are away a thousand dollars to the first five people I find who are following me, <laughs> or we would need to like we we would need to like have you on the podcast, and you'd have to mention in there somewhere that you know you think the market's slightly overvalued, and then we'd have to be like Carlisle calls for crash, and then 
find a, you know, a picture or like a screenshot when you're on there of you like looking like completely shocked and that needs to be the cover. Yeah. Like if, if we could do that, like we would probably get a lot more views, but uh, we're, we're trying to not do that. So uh, without doing that, we're trying to figure out like, you know, how, how to grow a channel on YouTube, which is actually kind of cool. It's, 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 it's a very interesting thing. I just put up my screen cap for, for later. I'll yeah. put that up in a bit. <laughs> there was a good, there was a good article in the journal over the weekend that was talking about like the new, the guy that is uh, head of YouTube. And there was just some interesting People can Google it. I don't know if it's on the front page anymore, but it was just, you know, how big that is. And um, it was kind of more his leadership style and kind of mapping his history at Google. And I think he ran, he was like in the ad business at one point. And then, you know, he's kind of, I think at YouTube and kind of viewing it, they're they're sort of like modeling it after like TV um, in the sense that they're trying to make, I guess, some of these more, they want to get like bigger, I think that one of the points of the article, they want to get like bigger, like advertisers, like you would get like on TV. They obviously have big advertisers on there, but you know, the Motley Fool is also running ads on there or Benzinga is also running their options. You know, that's, they're like looking to come up in terms yeah. of advertiser quality. Procter I found example. that interesting. Yeah, exactly. For Tell us, we've, we've made it to the, uh, to the full-time mark. Do you want to just, uh, Justin, Jack, let everybody know how to get uh, how to get in contact with you, what, what they can do to follow along with you guys? Yeah, so people can go to validia.com. It's V-A-L-I-D-A, I-D-E-A.com, like Val Idea, or Validia Capital Management. Um, you can Google that. And then I'm on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. You can check out the podcast, Excess Returns. That's on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube. And Jack, go ahead. Yeah, you covered most of it. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Practical Quant. So appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Thank Justin. You, it was awesome. Thanks, Jack. We'll see everybody next week. Same.